Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways Podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Jerry and with me is Al. We're really just a couple of dopes who like to listen to records and talk about them. We continue this time with side B of Pink Floyd's ninth album, Wish You Were Here. Uh, an album, Jerry, so far that I think you and I are in agreement. It's it's one of the strongest in not only the Pink Floyd catalog, but um, within the genre of rock or certainly progressive rock. Um, it's an album where every, every song has um, a musical side that is uh that bears repeat listenings that have lyrics that are um ripe ground for interpretation and to find meaning uh it's a very heartfelt album i I don't think there's a track on the album that does not have um some some soul and a piece of the songwriter in in the track um it's it's maybe their their last uh, pink floyd as a group it might be their last what i would I, I would say their last heartfelt album um if they've had many of those in in the past but certainly going forward um the the tone shifts uh you were talking at the end of the last episode about uh the the track welcome to the machine sort of the band or at least Roger in the song, digging deep into sort of a dark hole. And I think that they continue to dig that hole deeper and deeper, and they, they struggle to find a way out of it, ultimately until the band um, members sort of implode their relationship and uh, a, new, a new era of the band in the late 80s and 90s sort of takes it in a different direction. But certainly from here through the next three or four albums, You've, you've got the band sort of finding their way deeper into this dark, cynical, um, critical form of songwriting. The Wish You Were Here album has hints of that for sure, um, and we'll talk about it in the very first song on Side B, but um, overall there's, there's enough of an uplifting um, palate cleanse to all of the the negative moments on the the album that it feels like a very genuine heartfelt there's a, there's still a little bit of optimism and a little bit of positivity in the songwriting that is going to be a struggle after this album to to find a lot of until much later in the band career well for myself what is what stands out the most to me uh is this is such a a great follow-up album to dark side of the moon uh, it's that's no easy trick to to uh, produce turn out turn out a uh, a record album following such a significant success that itself is good if not great. Uh, I didn't give this album enough credit uh, when it came out. I liked it and I liked some of the songs on it. Really, I liked all of the songs on it. But uh, there was at the time when it came out, and I was a young teenager. I thought it was cool and it had some rocking elements to it. Thought it was great, but I really didn't listen to it a lot. Most of the listenings were, you know, friends who had a copy, or more often than not, uh, cuts that came on the radio. And uh, but 
on listening to this album since then, uh, and certainly over the past uh, few days as I was preparing for these uh, two podcasts on this album, covering side A and side B, uh, it really struck home to me how I had not given this album enough credit because there are some great songs on it and some fantastic production. And overall, the album itself is melancholy, kind of angry. Uh, definitely there's a sadness going on, you know, kind of the, as David Gilmore once referred to Roger Waters as Mr. Doom and Gloom, uh, <laughs> which is kind of humorous in retrospect, but at the time it probably was no fun for either of them. Uh, and that comment, I think, was made in the wake of the lawsuits that happened in the 80s and all of that uh, drama that we'll probably touch upon to significant degree as is uh, in future podcasts. But the album itself starts... This is where that kind of heaviness begins, but it is so well rendered and so legitimately done and is so musically charged that even in that context, uh, the album stands out. And it is, it's a neat trick to be able to pull off such a good album as a follow-up to what was a landmark great album that was Dark Side of the Moon. And uh, Side B uh, begins with Have a Cigar. What a, you know, from the first lick of the beginning to it, unless there's more you'd like to say about the album as a whole, that first lick to Have a Cigar is so... It's an iconic piece of Pink Floyd musicality, just in those those chords right there. Yeah, um, Have a Cigar is a track that, it leads off side B on the, the vinyl version, and for years I'd only ever heard it on, on CD, so Welcome to the Machine, actually, they they did an edit, it's it's very it's it's slight it's not overbearing but but welcome to the machine blends into um into the opening of have a cigar they they form a continuous uh piece as as the tracks continue one to another on the cd version but um you know i have only really ever listened to the wish you were here album as an album i've you know i've, I've songs will come on the radio and maybe as I shuffle my playlist or whatever, but um, if I'm going to listen to Wish You Were Here, I'm going to listen to it as a whole. Um, and, and the album speaks to me as a whole. And this is, this is right smack in the middle. And whatever was being alluded to in Welcome to the Machine, um, and even on the previous album with a track like Money, uh, Have a Cigar is a very direct um, uh, critique and take on the music industry and the characters that uh, come out of the woodworks when they smell success and a way to, whether it's to earn a buck off of someone else's name or to find some sort of celebrity rubbing shoulders with, with somebody in the hopes of maybe getting your picture in a magazine or something. Um, it comes out in Have a Cigar and 
if money was the prequel uh, where they're singing about fame and fortune before really having obtained that um now that they have it and this is almost like roger saying oh young lad who wrote that song money a couple years ago if you only knew right (laughs) i see what you're saying there for me uh this album and the song itself have a cigar this is what started side b and i never own the LP, certainly not when it came out. It was I was hearing copies owned by friends. And I remember I had a college roommate who had a copy of the album, and we would listen to it from time to time. So this was how Side B began. And uh, so from my own experience, this was a, a, a separate song, obviously is a separate song unto itself, but it was, you had the ending of Side A, you would silence until you flip the record, and then it would begin with uh, Gilmore's strong, churning guitar licks as it, you know, kicking off the song. And that was played very well on the radio, which is how I really heard this song for the first time. It was on the radio, and like other cuts on this album, uh, Have a Cigar had a good amount of radio play. This was had this was in the high rotation, certainly as when the album came out. <clears throat> Definitely when the tour came through. I was too young to go see him on that tour, which I regret uh, a lot. But oh well, what can you do? Uh, but and as years went on after, it was uh, a staple of album rock radio. And lives on to this day as a classic rock cut. You know, this is gets played, I would imagine, pretty regularly on classic rock radio, which I don't listen to a lot, maybe when I'm driving. But uh, it is a classic Pink Floyd cut in that respect. Uh, obviously, Pink Floyd fans know the song, but this is one of those cuts that uh, would really did not get a lot of concert play, except on the tour and on some uh, Roger Water tours and David Gilmore tours. But, uh, excuse me a moment. <coughs> they um, uh, they didn't play Have a Cigar when I saw Pink Floyd live on the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour. I didn't make the set, the set list on that one. Uh, so it was really more so for me a radio song uh but it was cool really because of uh david gilmore's guitar uh the solo was singular in that respect and uh as i referenced earlier how the song begins uh but it's uh biting cynicism lyrically speaking uh was definitely a standout and was certainly a I'm not going to say a pander, but it was something that, you know, teenage boys and maybe teenage girls could identify with, you know, that, you know, this is success, you want success, you want to be a rock star, well, this is the stupid crap that, you know, rock stars have to deal with, and uh, yeah, we're riding the gravy train and all of that, but, you know, we're having to deal with idiots, and we're having to deal with 
a lot of stuff that is really kind of smells bad. And uh, it's not great. It's not all, you know, champagne and caviar or anything like that. There's a, you know, this is the music industry. And uh, that's, I think, a cousin to Welcome to the Machine, which is, I can imagine on a, uh, listening to this on a, a CD, how the, uh, not digression, but the shift from uh, Welcome to the Machine to Have a Cigar, how that plays so well, you know, and I am sure at the time when they were piecing this album together and trying to figure out what songs go where, you know, that they considered the fact that, well, this is the point that the listener is going to flip the album, so we need something strong to kick off uh, the second side. Uh, and that was part of their decision-making process to use this here. And it's a very strong one. This is uh, their, uh, you mentioned earlier how strong this album is uh, song-wise. There really isn't a weak throwaway cut on it anywhere. You know, it all stands, uh, they all stand together very well unto themselves. And uh, they went with this to start off side B and it is a strong knockout of a song. It gets your attention, and it holds you, and it's interesting to listen to, and it's, uh, and this isn't even my favorite Pink Floyd song, or I think even in my top 10, but on listening to this album, as I did over the previous past few several days, uh, this fits in quite perfectly. It's definitely that dark cynicism uh, to offset the sad melancholy from Shine On You Crazy Diamond. This is the the dark kind of cynical direction Roger Waters is taking uh, that he seems that he wants to express, and it's so well done. It's, uh, you know, I remember at the time thinking the whole riding the gravy train refrain was kind of a, you know, not so much as a cop out, but you know, where it's you know just kind of rich rock stars complaining about how they were making a lot of money, you know, i.e. the gravy train. It's a little bit but, of a corny line too. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of coal mine, salt mine, whatever. It's uh, it's still legitimate unto itself. It it really, if you're if you think it's pandering, you third person you, uh, then you're really not listening to it and uh you know hats off to roger waters for being for uh speaking his mind coming from the heart i like it a lot yeah uh a couple things like you were talking about the the transition out of welcome to the machine um it 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 plays on the cd and that's that's how i grew up listening to this album it plays back to back with have a cigar and welcome to the machine like what, the way Welcome to the Machine ends, you're in my mind, you're getting off that elevator and you're you hear the sounds of the party or the people who are there. It's, it always sounds to me like a party. And um, the next track is Welcome to the or Have a Cigar, where you know, in my mind, playing the story out, we we're, we've entered the machine the, of the music industry in this case, and there's the party, there's all the swells having clinking their glasses and having a good time. And someone offers you the cigar, and the the CD record executive uh, 
starts in with the lyrics of, of the song, basically. Um, I mentioned how the songs that we've heard so far from the band about being a rock star and not really in a positive light. I, I, there, there hasn't been too many, like, maybe San Tropez, maybe was the one. Right. Where, <laughs> gosh, isn't it great to be rich? Um, but apart from that, you know, they haven't really had a lot of good things to say about being big, famous, successful rock stars. Um, and I, I, I certainly can see why. And I think this is the one track that, that addresses that in a way that is... A, for me anyway more palatable more accepting because I think a lot of people have that perception of the music industry or the entertainment business where um, yeah there are vultures who want to attach themselves to you or, or you know pick at your bones there are um, hangers on there are people who work in an office all day working on the business side of things and they don't even know they haven't even listened to the album that they're selling um which one's pink you know they don't even know the member the band members that they're supposedly managing or producing or or promoting or whatever the case may be so um i i think that's the perception a lot of people may have of of industry types music industry types, entertainment business types. And so it comes across as a bit more, um, uh, I, I can accept it more. I think also having the, the decision to bring in a guest vocalist, in this case it's Roy Harper, um, to sing the song as a character. I know that the band, I know David and Roger, I think, are on record as having said that they tried singing the song themselves. And I think Roger even regretted later on giving the vocal over to somebody else. Um, but I think it works. I don't, I don't think he should be upset about it too much because I think it works because it's, um, it's you're having the, having a guest vocalist just adds to sort of the play acting of the piece, or at least the, the, the dramatization of this clueless record executive. If it was a member of the band, I think it would come across as, Maybe um, I'm not sure if inauthentic is the right word, but it would it would come across almost hypocritical. Yeah, almost. possibly. Um, so uh, it, it works on that level for me, um, where other songs that sort of tread similar ground haven't worked as well. Um, I do I do like the you know we haven't talked much on on our wish you were here episode so far about. Um, the the music production side of things, and, and you alluded to it. You know, it's it's opening side B. It's got a great um, music track underneath. Uh, this is this has been um, David Gilmore has not had vocals on this album. He he he's on Shine on You Crazy Diamond, but that's led by Roger. Uh, he does sing on Welcome to the Machine. I'm sorry, I was mistaken on that. But um, he, he hasn't really had done the, the beautiful David Gilmore voice on, on this album yet. Stay tuned and we'll get there. Um, but his guitar work all over this album is impeccable. And he's really shown himself to be a, a musical, um, 
almost a musical director for for the band. Roger's got the ideas, the riffs maybe, but David is the one I feel who is his performance on these uh, tracks is just among the best in his career. And this particular track ending, it, it ends with a guitar solo that's just, it's a very searing, very soaring, very, very tinny almost sounding guitar uh, solo that sort of has these sweeping effects on it. And maybe that's Rick in the background doing a lot of that work too. But um, I love how it shifts into that. It used to, like it, you're listening to it on an old crappy radio. Um, as, as it transitions into the next track, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that, that, that production element, that, that little detail that they didn't have to do something like that, but it adds a little bit of a sweeping um, story punchline to the end where, um, you know, all of this behind the scenes, how the sausage is made of the, the music industry. And then we switch to this, as if someone's listening to the product on an old crappy radio, you know, all of that work that went on behind the scenes. And really it's, it's going to end with somebody listening to it on a radio. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. And I think what they were doing there, and I, this might be confirmed in some interviews as well, but it's, there's a meta aspect going on where, as you said, you have the sausage making going on, the good and the bad, but really what it comes down to is a lot of work, a lot of showing up and you know, hammering through stuff to get the sound right and to get things recorded and mixed and all of that. <clears throat> and against that, you have the the record executives and the backslapping and the you know showing up to affairs so you can meet the the head of the you know the the marketing department or whatever, and uh, and the final product is is it the the song itself puts the listener. Uh, into the song where you know that it's a crappy sounding radio which there was a lot of crappy sounding radios <laughs> back in the mid-70s it was pretty much the uh, standard I mean people had their home stereos and you know car stereos were starting to become more present at the time but they certainly were you know, kind of the exception. Is it still? But, uh, this is still AM radio days, though, right? Yeah. Well, no. This FM. This is definitely in the era of FM and FM stereo and car radios were. You know, your eight track. I mean, there. I'm sure there. This album came out in eight track, uh, along with on vinyl and cassette and all that type of stuff. But that you know, having your eight track stereo in the car and it sounded as good as it did. It actually sounded, if you'd never heard it before, if you'd only heard AM radio and then went to stereo, it sounded fantastic, particularly with, you know, going back to David Gilmore here, his guitar playing on this song and the album itself, but certainly the song is phenomenal. But uh, to have it, I mean, but great stereo systems in people's cars, maybe, and, and, and in, in homes for that matter, was kind of the exception. You know, they, they were, it was, the industry was growing in that respect. It was becoming more uh, uh, popular, present in ordinary people uh, in homes, but 
you know, really it was an audio file sort of thing. You know, it was a file meaning an audio aficionado, that sort of thing. You know, a guy who wanted a great stereo. And, you know, having quality sound products in the house, much less in your car, was kind of an outlier in, in the mid-'70s, although that was starting to change by that point. Uh, I mean, I remember, for instance, my dad had a car stereo in the mid-'70s and with a cassette deck in the dash, and it sounded great. And I'm sure if I listened to it with the ears as they are, decades later I'd be going well that sounds okay but you know I can hear the hiss from the tape you know as an example but to go meta the way they did to take the song to put it to where well there's a listener hearing it on a crappy radio and now he's changing the channel you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> which was which was a, a nice touch you know in retrospect it kind of seems sort of obvious but at the time it was kind of a brave little it was an artistic decision that was made at the time, and uh, it, you know it really doesn't do much for the song itself, but it doesn't detract from it either. And it's a it's a little daub of paint to put on the production itself, and it serves it well. And the radio stations loved it. You know that whole they still use that effect. You'll hear advertising on radio where someone will be talking about some event or some product or whatever. And then they'll pull the bass out of the out of the uh, out of you know what's being said, so it sounds like you're listening to something on the radio, on the radio, and it's a cheap little, in a, in an advertising sense, it's a cheap little gimmick to get people's attention. To Pink Floyd, when they were uh, producing this album, it was a little daub of paint. Uh, to I guess under underscore the I don't know the 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 state of the of the music business that you know you have these grand expectations of being a rock star and then all of a sudden you're going to cocktail parties with all these phonies who just want to get product out and make money no matter what they say about it and when all is said and done it's some you know, dope like me listening to it on a crappy radio uh, who's 12 years old and, you know, couldn't really tell the difference between quality and lack of quality if you asked them, much less describe it. So great little thing to have there. How it takes it to the next song is a very, very, you know, there's a lot of dexterity there, you know. So it was a brave little path to take and it works it works so well but never mind the transition from uh, have a cigar to the next song the song itself is just so i mean just taken it's greater than the sum of its parts but the parts that make comprise the song are fantastic just uh i really didn't give the song enough credit when i first heard it and in years to follow but listening to this album as I have over the past few days, uh, as I said, this isn't my favorite song on the album, but it is very strong, and it is uh, so well rendered. You know, it it all fits in very well with the flow of the album, and I think what Roger, primarily Roger, but what the rest of the band was trying to get across, and uh, for that, 
you know, I, I applaud it in that respect. Yeah, it's um, it's a song that uh, it's the closest uh, Roger. Well, I maybe not the closest he's come, but it, he's it, this is on the list of Pink Floyd songs that are almost funny. It's almost yeah. humorous and yeah. comical because there's a spinal tap aspect to it. There is, and there, there's a the character of of the record executive who is you know from whose perspective the song is being sung, like the just the cluelessness of some of the things he's saying, and the I'm sure these are all things that they've that they heard at one point or another from an actual human being saying it unironically. Um, I, I love little touches like, uh, you know, when they're saying that we're so happy we can hardly count, you know, that's right. <laughs> that's all they're meant to do is, is count the money and they're, they're just so happy. There's so much of it to count. They can barely do it. Um, and, you know, I, I would argue the first, you know, this one, all the songs on the album really to this point um, have been about struggle related to a career in the arts and you could apply it to any kind of uh, career if you, if you like to, but, or any kind of, you know, life path that you like to, yeah, but where the arts meet uh, commercialism. Sure. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the struggle to get it, to be inspired, to get it made, to get it put out into, into the audience's hands and then, like you say, some dopey twelve-year-old listening on a crappy radio, where all that work and production that you put into mixing it, making sure, and um, you had an argument with the drummer about the way his his drum sounded, or you fought with the guitar player about that one note that didn't sound right. And you know, you and I both work in you know the entertainment industry to a degree, and every you know all the hard work that goes into creating those moments and a lot of people don't pay the attention to them or don't appreciate what goes into it not and not to lament that or anything but it's just a you know a fact that some dopey 12 year old's going to turn turn it on a radio that sounds like crap and then after 10 or 12 seconds flip it over to something else right well it, the line goes and we tell you the name of the game boy we call it riding the gravy train, and that's where art meets commerci- commerciality. Uh, my father was a commercial artist, so you know I'm pretty. Uh, I, I understand exactly that where that that friction happens or how it can happen, and uh, the, I mean that's just uh, you know woven into my being. I I'm, I, I guess you could say without sounding too highfalutin i'm sophisticated enough about the process to recognize that that's that's part of how it works and it can i'm not an artist so i can't entirely entirely relate to the artist's struggle of trying to be true to one's own self and also to be commercially viable i can't relate to that entirely although intellectually i can kind of imagine how it would work but you know to be honest i i've never lived that life so that's not really something i can talk intelligently about (laughs) to any to, to any significant or legitimate degree but 
you know, it's clearly a statement on the song itself. I have a cigar. Clearly a statement on the, you know, on the, 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 the dark shadows that no one really is familiar with of, of being an artist and dealing with these corporate flax, for lack of a better word, and, and people well understand the idea of, you know, corporate super superficiality, because that whole subject has been beaten into the ground for decades, and certainly to an extent uh, going back into the, the 1950s, you know, with the, the beatniks and, you know, the beginning of the 60s and all that type of stuff. All that said, uh, Rogers is very true to, you know, he what he's expressing doesn't come across as pandering at all. This isn't a, you know, I'm going to put this out and this is going to tickle that little nerve and, you know, we're riding the direct gravy train. This this comes across to me as very heartfelt and, 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 and cynical, obviously cynical, and that, you know, he wanted to put out a expression of what he thought about it and he does it by creating this character uh, that Roy Harper does the vocals on and to great effect. I think I re- uh, sideways to that, I think I remember reading something where they tried it as a duet with uh, both uh, uh, Roger Waters and David Gilmore singing it and decided that it really wasn't working and ultimately ended up getting uh, Harper to sing on it who was in the studio working on his own production. Yeah. And good decision. Almost, yeah. You can almost not imagine it being sung by anybody else. Exactly. Exactly. Although I've heard recordings of Gilmore singing it and he does a perfectly legitimate uh, job at, at it. Um, I think in earlier years, uh, Roger Waters would have been able to pull it off. I don't know if he has the, the, the vocal range to do it now. Uh, but it would would have been very interesting to hear Roger Waters back as he was able to sing in the 1970s, and I guess probably into the 80s for that matter, uh, him uh, performing this song uh, versus the Roy Harper version. It would have been a different song, I think, as far as it's uh, how it sticks with you, because... The Harper comes across as very gritty and uh, almost yelling, I guess. He, but he yelling, sounds, yelling in a musical way. Yeah, he sounds like a he, like Roy Harper. Uh, his performance makes this character jump across as a or come across as a as a cartoon. Very um, much so. Agree. Where, where I don't think David or Roger would have. Roger might have. Uh, but not to the not to the same degree um, that Roy was able to uh, give that characterization, which you know this is uh, again a, a, almost a comical song. I think that performance lends uh, some credence to that analysis that uh, this this cartoonish in in spots is almost overdone, but not not to the point where you you wince or cringe, but you're like oh he's really. Like if, if it was an if it was an animation, you could you could almost see the colors on the screen, um, just jumping out at you. Uh, l- later in things like Animals in the Wall, um, similar kinds of 
I guess, circumstances being sung about, but, I mean, compare with Comfortably Numb, you know, it's, it's two sides of the same coin, but they're very different from each other. Yeah, that's true. I always saw the, the character as a, when I think of a good cartoon, I think of Funny Goofy, and, and that's just my own personal kind of emotional reaction when I think of cartoon as an idea. Uh, without getting too pedantic about it, it's it's more of a caricature, yeah. if I can say that word. And uh, it's, a, it's a thumbnail sketch that's actually pretty well fleshed out when you get down to it. Uh, but it is a, uh, you know, cartoon works, but it's not really comical. You know, this isn't, there is, a, there is a, a dark comedy undertone to it. You know, by the way, which one is pink, which is based on numerous interviews that they gave at the time where, you know, someone in the press would ask them, you know, which of you guys is pink? Uh, because they were provincials and they had no clue. And uh, they they had the question and they threw it out there and the band, or probably Roger Waters, who was fielding most of the questions, I would imagine, would be rolling his eyes and in his in his head going, oh God, this <laughs> question again. You know, when does it ever stop? You know, it's a treadmill over and over and over, which feeds into the whole cynicism of, of, um, of have a cigar and welcome to the machine, which are... You know, it's that cynicism and sadness is the underlying theme to this album, and uh, it is very much on display. The the cynicism is certainly almost to a comical point is how it goes on Have a Cigar. But musically itself, it is so strong. Uh, Roy Harper is fabulous on it, and uh, the the best part about it is is Gilmore's guitar on it. Without not that was that said. You know, props to Roger for writing it because uh, it's a uh, as powerful a take on uh, the music industry and perhaps any other corporate machine that you can think of. It is a, a excellent, uh, almost a graphic novel of uh, uh, of life in the music business in the 1970s and probably to this day. Yes, and um, I, I think it it's a good it's a good sequence because it it kicks your interest back into the album after you've you flipped the side over. Um, it's given you a sort of a, a I, I hesitate to say a light uh, or a lightweight kind of interpretation or view of that side of of their lives at that point because um, I'm sure it's you know it's. It, it's a problem we'd all like to have until we have that as a problem, I'm sure. Um, right. Well put. And then going into the next track, uh, which is the title track, Wish You Were Here, um, a, a tonal shift. How I wish, how I wish you were here. We're just two lost souls swimming. Big time, and it segued with the radio. Uh, they, you know, the song "Have a Cigar" cuts. You know, the radio stations gets changed, and uh, the listeners, you know, the the created listener within the album is tuning for something different because they want to listen to something else. So, all that work and effort, etc., for you know, 
for padding out the gravy train is, uh, well, it's almost a pearls before swine uh, uh, statement there. Uh, but it goes into Wish You Were Here, which starts on a crappy radio, but the tonal shift is, uh, it's, it, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, words, uh, it, it, it's almost a relief to get away from that dark cynicism, that brash bravado of the of corporate giants and corporate idiots. And then we come to this very simple, uh, but so eloquent, uh, plinking on a guitar. You know, just just a few notes here, uh, which similar in that respect to uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, you know, the, the, the SIDS theme there, uh, you get these very beautiful, well-presented, and very clear notes that uh, become, uh, which are thematic to the song, of course, but uh, are iconic unto themselves within the catalog of, of Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's it's the guitar riff that every you know punk ass kid learning guitar has to either figure out or learn for themselves. I had a roommate play. who would play it incessantly. True story. <laughs> this is this is a roommate in college who had a copy of the album and he was learning to play guitar. And at one point he woke me up to show me that he he had learned how to play. Yeah, ba ba da ba ba. You know, and uh, I was like, "Oh, cool, man, great, it's coming along." And, you know, <laughs> subtext: Why the Why the hell did you wake me up? That is a true story. You really did that. So every kid in their bedroom with a guitar who liked Pink Floyd, uh, you know, when they heard this, they figured out how to play it and were probably thrilled to death that they were able to play it. Well, it's a it's a, it's a beautiful little piece of music there. Yeah, like and. Just, that that punk ass kid was me too. Like I grabbed my dad's guitar and um, I had a tab for it. And you realize pretty quick if you're you're learning your your basic guitar chords, like it's just a G chord. It's all it is, and a few little note um, embellishments, you know, here and there. But it's not difficult to play. The whole song is not difficult to play. And as as you you dig through a lot of the catalog, the the core sort of musical structure, the chords that are being played, uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the solos or anything like that, because those are, um, there's a level of artistry and nuance and you have to have some skill to play. They're not like wild fast or anything, but you do need to have, to know what you're doing. But you can, as a beginning guitar player, get the chords for a number of well-known Pink Floyd songs, and then you realize just how simple they are in their basic structure. Now, the simple is good. Simple is a good thing. It works incredibly well. Um, and the fact that they are such, the band members are such strong musicians that they can take this simple structure and elevate it. You talk about a song that elevates and, and just sort of ascends. Wish You Were Here is, is a perfect example. Um, of, of a song that builds and swells. I think about tracks from uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, Us and Them, Brain Damage, that, that start small but swell into these big, bombastic kind of uh, uh, numbers by the end. This, this is a track that does it, and it does it with lyrics that, you know, I, I talked about how the song Time 
it's my favorite Pink Floyd song. And I'm not wavering from that, but if I were to have a, a number two, I think it would be this song just because of just how how hard hitting these 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 lines are that Roger's written. And I believe Roger and David wrote this one together. I would imagine Roger was the driving force behind the lyrics. Um where they maybe collaborated on the musical side of things. And then David, as the singer of this track, this is, his, this is one of his best vocal performances in, in his entire career. Um, there's, there's I agree. A, there's a wistful quality. There's a longing. There's, you can really feel it in his performance, and you can feel it in the words that um, there is some body, some distant person that he's singing to i don't know if it's i always treat think of it as a physical distance a physical separation but i'm sure there's the emotional separation you can be distant from someone that you know lives in the same house um and i i think i've read quotes where roger says he wrote the song as much about sort of an internal separation like he's trying to find himself and he's not fully here within his own self so there's there's all kinds of interpretations i'm sure but for me it was always for me it sounded like a song about a physical separation someone you knew who is who has left or you've left them um and you want to you want to bring them back um and maybe the person who left you or who left is not uh didn't necessarily go for the right reasons or didn't find what they were looking for out there, wherever there is. And almost that you didn't, you know, you didn't realize what you had till it was gone kind of a thing. In the uh, Pink Floyd catalog. And I thought pretty hard about this, trying to find something that was more so. Uh, and I really couldn't think of it. This uh, wish you were here is I think the most poetic in my own personal opinion, it's the most it's the most poetic that Waters has ever been, and um, and poetically eloquent. He invites the listener into the song, you know, so so you think you can tell. Uh, so the listener is immediately engaged, or that is the intent, and it works. And it crosses a number of broad subjects, but it does it very metaphorically and almost in it kind of ambiguously. I mean, uh, we all know what a green field is and uh, we might know what a cold steel rail is, but uh, what does that mean to the listener itself? And that's less left to the listener. But just taken at face value, uh, there's an eloquence there. There's a degree of poetry, which is sublime simply sublime it is a, it is one of the most beautiful uh wistful pieces of pink floyd ever recorded and it's a it's a home run in that respect it really really grabs you uh it, it's very heartfelt and it never come across as cheap or pandering it seems like it's a very sincere uh, statement uh, or a very sincere uh, se- series of questions 
for the listener to ask ask of themselves and then it you know once it starts asking those questions or once it's asked those questions it simply goes to a statement of longing you know how i wish how i wish you were here which practically everyone can identify with whether it's a loss of a parent or a loss of a friend or a loss of a uh, a pet uh it's just it's it's loss and that's part of life you know people come people go things enter our lives things leave our lives we enter into life and ultimately we'll leave this life and it's it's crossing and touching on all those very very human uh feelings you know very human uh experience and it is so emphatic and uh you know roger waters could never uh well David Gilmore might disagree, but Roger Waters could never really uh, be accused of not having empathy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, sorry, Roger, or sorry, David. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is, is he, uh, Roger Waters and Gilmore, song being co-written by them, and I agree, Gilmore I'm had to have been the heavier on the music side of things. Uh, and so I give credit to Roger for the most part for the writing. Uh, it is so honest and sincere and heartfelt that uh, it's just a wonderful song. And this also was one of those tracks, like pretty much the entire album, that got its own amount of radio play, significant radio play, when this album came out. Oh, and still uh, to this day, it's on all to, the time. To, yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's what, there's definitely a lot of crossover in that, well, it's from this incredible, you know, well-renowned, legendary progressive rock band, Pink Floyd, but it's not psychedelic. You know, it's, it, it's, it is a, uh, it's, it's, it's just a song. Uh, that asks questions of the listener and then makes a statement of loss and longing and uh, fear and going through the same old, same old, you know, just two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl, you know, year after year. You know, that, that whole human condition thing to where whether you're going to school every day or going to work every day or getting in your car or getting on the bus, it's something that, you know, people can certainly relate to and but it's not presented in such a way as to i'm writing this so people can relate to it it just is and the fact that it's had such longevity speaks volumes yeah and this is this is another track that uh, oftentimes uh gets um attributed to being about sid once again um, where where Roger has, has stated that's not the case. It's not he wasn't particularly thinking about Sid at the time that he wrote it. Although it, I mean, you can definitely have that interpretation. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's certainly enough there in the lyrics where if you wanted to apply that interpretation, you'd be justified in doing so. Um, but you know, if, if he's singing about himself, if Roger is truly singing about, you know, w wish I was here, like where's this part of me that's missing the 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 second verse is a good through line with 
have a cigar and welcome to the machine where, you know, maybe he's asking these questions of himself. Am, am I, now that I'm a successful rock star, am I still all of the things that I thought I was or that I wanted to be? Um, am I still an artist with something to say or am I now some corporate, uh, you know, part of the machine, part of the machine. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's, it's a testament of true, truly great art, whether, and I think I've said this before as well. So apologies for the repetition, but it, it, it applies here, whether it's a painting on the wall, whether it's a film that you love, it's a book that you can't put down and you reread over again, uh, or, or an album or a song that you listen to over and over. Truly great art has the power to just find itself, find meaning in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it touches um, the heart. Exactly. And, and Wish You Were Here, the song, is, I think, the sort of the, the, the peak of the mountain for, for Pink Floyd to achieve that. It's a song, more, almost more than any other in their catalog, that 50 people can listen to it and you'd have 50 different interpretations because it sparks, sure. it sparks some kind of a thought. It can spark a specific memory about a specific person. It can spark a, a, a feeling where you're actually answering the questions for yourself. Um, it, it's, it, there's a lot to it. And it, it's like a lot of what was on Dark Side of the Moon, what made that so successful of an album is, is, is these, univer these specific ideas given this universal presentation, which I think is what you said about that album last time when we were talking about it. Sure. Um, it it's, it's a perfect balance in, in that regard. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite songs, period. It's, it's certainly one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad that it's, it's, it's still playing the radio. I, I teach high school. We do a... Um, uh, project in my class where they create a music video and I've had students uh, propose this particular song for for their project so it's 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 continuing to reach new audiences teenagers are, are picking up on the song and it's one like time on the last album and, and like a lot of songs where it, it hits you differently at different points in your life so it's got staying power um, in that regards too so I, I mean I can go on talking about it for for too long of amount of time, but I, I, it, it's a, it's almost a perfect song if there is such a thing. Well, before we move on to the final track uh, on this album, I think I'll uh, take the opportunity to let Roger Waters have the last word on the song itself, and as from an interview, and uh, what Roger had to say in his quote, in a way, it's a schizophrenic song. It's directed at my other half, if you like the battling elements within myself. There's the bit that's concerned with other people. There's that empathy there, unquote. Uh, <laughs> that's not part, that's, that's me editorializing. Uh, the bit that one applauds in oneself, and then there's the grasping avariciousness, selfish, or the avaricious, selfish little kid who wants to get his hands on the sweets and have them all. The song slips in and out of both persona, and so the bit that always ends up, that always wants to win, is feeling upset and plaintively saying to the other side, wish you were here. 
and uh, he does that well in the song. I mean, that's that. I mean, I'm not saying that was my first impression when I read the song, but his explanation in an er- interview to to describe the song and what it means to him that. I, that, that holds up. It's legitimate. It seems heartfelt. And I have no reason to uh, disbelieve him. I think he is sincere here. And I'm sure he is. I mean, it's... Uh, it's. Uh, I think Waters recognizes that it, it is a landmark song unto itself. And uh, it, it is strong as it can be, or as, as strong as it is, uh, that it holds up well. Um and he, uh, you know, if I had written the song, I'd be very proud of it. And uh, it's, it's, it is a song certainly to where when I come across it on the radio, I'll leave the radio on. You know, I'll let it, I'll let it play because, you know, it's, 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 it's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of music. And uh, it's... You know, I'm I'm glad that it's here because it's it's made it's colored my life in a in a positive way, without getting too uh, clinical about it. Yeah, and it, it's it's a good uh, thesis for all of the tracks on the album, which is you know a reason for giving the album title "Wish You Were Here" as well. It's it's yeah, it's, it's the title track. It's there the you title go. track for a reason. You're not gonna. Give your album the title of a song if the song doesn't carry the weight that uh, that is required of such a, a, a spot. Um, well, like I said, I could talk about the track for forever, but um, I would like to, if you, unless you've got anything else to say about it, move on into uh, the final track. Uh, the, the only thing I want to say further to this is, is credit to the decision-making process to not have Wish You Were Here be in the title track to start the album or end the album. They put it in towards the end, but it's not the end. The end is uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, part six through nine. And we, we talked about Shine on your crazy diamond. Um, sort of the meaning and the the story behind the song in in our last episode. Um, the fact that it's cut up into two pieces. I think the original idea, at, at least as far as I could could see on on you know doing research, was the idea was to have it to be a full album side uh, track, similar to yeah, kind of like echoes on uh, on metal. Yeah, or or Adam Hartmother. So. Um, sure. The the decision to to split it up and to to sandwich the the new material in between, I think gives. I think you're right. I agree with you. I think it gives the song, um, the songs in between uh, a, a proper spot, and I think it gives this song its um, it served better as as two two separate pieces than if you were to try to make it through the entire thing in one go. Echoes and Adam Hart Mother, I, I, I love those songs. They're my favorites from those particular albums. Um, they do ask a lot of you, though, to sit and listen for 20-odd minutes to, to make it through. So 
it is at you know shine on your crazy diamond nine or uh, six through nine is on the end of the album so you are making your way to the end of the side if you're unless you're dropping your needle or skipping ahead on the cd or whatever but um it's it it offers some new musical pieces that weren't in the other parts it's not just a rehash it's not a it's not a reprise of of what was on side a there's musically there's some new stuff there's there's the wind um which i'm not sure is it the is it the same exact wind sound effect or wind machine sound effect from echoes is that confirmed are you aware my understanding of it is is the wind uh that you're hearing at the beginning of part six of of uh, shine on your crazy diamond that wind is a pickup from the wind that comes out of wish you were here whether that's the same wind that was on echoes or anything like that i have no idea and never even i never even thought of you know, thought to question that. I wonder where that wind came from. But <laughs> you've never a, contemplated the wind sound effects on. I've you. never contemplated, you know, the genesis of the wind. But I do know that. I mean, I noticed it because it's evident that the wind. Uh, wish you were here. Closes with sort of a uh, you know a wind sound, a wind motif. Um, yeah, motif isn't the right word. A sound effect, and uh, and that's how it picks up. Or it goes into uh, this last parts, or this second half per se, the side B part of "Shine On You Crazy Diamond." Um, it link, links the two songs. It, yeah, and uh, I must have—I think I must have read that, but I don't know if I had read that as part of an official account or if that was some kind of speculation. But um, irrelevant, really, where the wind comes from. Uh, it does. It does get you into this next part, and uh, or this next, you know, it's the second half of "Shine On You Crazy Diamond." There's some funkiness to this one, um, sure. To this uh, back end of the uh, the bookend, um, there's some wistfulness. Uh, there's uh, what David Gilmore describes in as the end of the track as a funeral march. Um, right. So, you know, if that's part of the uh, the Sid connection there, that it's you know they're they're putting to rest this um, this memory of of their bandmate. Um, and I, I read this too that there's uh, there's a little bit of C. Emily play in mixed in very faintly. You can hear a little bit of the melody of C. Emily play. Towards Interesting. The end of the track. I I never came across that. Uh, however, I just gave you an edit point. I have to use the restroom. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Fine. I'm going to keep my record going. Yes, please so, do. I'll, I'll just okay. I'll mark that there. Yeah. Right. And okay. I'll mark that there. But we'll mark again when we when we return. Sorry about that. I'll no be worries. right back. Take care of it.
Okay, I am back. Still there? I'm here. Okay, so let me get back to this point here. Uh, we're still recording, so I'll give us a marker coming in three, two, one, marker. Oh, I fucked that one up. Damn it. Oh, well. Okay, this will be second marker, part two, coming in three, two, one, marker. Better. Close enough? Yeah. You'll figure it out. You're a pro. They're already going to be lined up anyway, so I, that's just a, exactly. the place uh, where I need to cut. What I, uh, my uh, little, uh, to what you were saying, I was going to say, interesting. I had come across that, but I never really looked at it exactly like that. But uh, do continue. Yeah, and I'll have to go back and give it a closer listen with some headphones to see if I can pick that little melody out. But if it's there, it's a nice little touch um, to sort of put a put a little um, Easter egg in there for for Sid. But um, right, you know the 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 song itself, "Shine on Your Crazy Diamond." It gets played in in concerts. Um, or it was played in Pink Floyd concerts. Um, it's a, certainly a staple. It, it's a show opener, which is uh, a good a good spot for it. And I think the band has has sort of worked it out where they play certain parts and they drop certain parts and they lengthen or extend others. And so you never quite get a faithful to the album um, performance, which I would argue you don't really want entirely faithful to the album you want to give it some reason for going to see them live but um i I do like um i I do like the different sections here and how it has a different sound than just repeating what was on side a um have you uh caught the the performance that david gilmore did his solo acoustic tour from the early 2000s, 2002 or three ish, uh, where he performs. I've seen, on... I've seen bits of it, and as far as his entire presentation of "Shine On You Crazy Diamond," uh, in what to the tour you're referencing? No, I don't believe I have, but it, I know of it. But I have, I don't think I've listened to it. it. It's it's a fascinating recording. He's he's got his uh, he it's the first song he plays. He's by himself. The rest of his band joins in later. Um, but so he starts the track by himself. He's got his guitar connected to whatever sort of pedals and samplers that he's got it hooked up to. And he's able to sort of hit, hit the notes just right and record them with whatever effects that he's able to sort of do the, the Rick Wright keyboard sections sampled with his acoustic guitar. Wow. Then he goes into playing his his parts on top of that sampled recording that he's just made on stage. Um, you can you can sort of see he's he's bending the strings. He's almost gripping the guitar too tight. He's uh, he's bending the screen the strings a little bit too tight. You can hear him scraping against the neck of the guitar. I think more than he would would like. But he's he's. He's come out afterwards and saying how proud of that performance he is. And if you haven't, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's. I'm sure it's on YouTube or. I think after somewhere. we com- after we complete uh, side B, uh, I will go take a listen to it. It's very take a rewarding, look, listen, it, et cetera. It, it's very rewarding. It's it's a it's a remarkable performance. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to say was, 
we haven't mentioned uh, Dick Perry and his saxophone at all, and he was all over um, key tracks on Dark Side of the Moon. He's all over sure. Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I think he toured with the, the group and continued to play his sax parts uh, in the live performances on the Dark Side and Wish You Were Here tours. So I want to make sure we did mention that because I think it's a, it's an integral part of the song, having having Dick Perry in there playing saxophone. Oh, yeah. Agreed entirely. The, what, what stands out to me, at least as far as uh, part six is concerned for uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, is uh, David's guitar, once again, uh, which is a very bluesy, uh, but there's definitely a kind of a, not a high-speed rock aspect to it, but it's a... It's not a slow blues, it's blues guitar, but it's played at a more a greater clip, and maybe that's the percussion track that's going on in it. But the um, there's no lyrics in part six. It's it's just, it's working the theme, the, the shine on you crazy diamond theme, and it's something well. David Gilmour makes it look so or sounds so easy. It makes it look. It's, it's very, very eloquent and well-rendered and presented and produced or played, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's very, very, plays it with a lot of dexterity, but uh, it makes it look easy uh, how he does it. And uh, the guitar, I think, is the, the uh, although there's a lot going on in part six, uh, Dave's guitar is a standout on it. And uh, that's what I like most about how we return to Shine On You Crazy Diamond, you know, from the howling wind, et cetera, and the wind fades away. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the bass guitar parts as it begins, and then it's Dave, you know, on the Stratocaster and, uh, and uh, playing, I mean, I'm not a musician enough to be able to describe exactly what notes he's going to and what chords he's playing or anything like that. But uh, it's a, it's basically a blues uh, sequence, uh, but it is perfect to the song itself. It carries the song forwards and it's listenable, and it just, uh, you know, is a important part of reestablishing the song itself into its bookend place of we're reaching towards the end of the album even though this part six through nine is like 12 and a half minutes or something like that uh it carries the song forwards it doesn't seem like a a rehash just of uh, what opened up the album to begin with. It's, as you mentioned, it's new parts. It's uh, as part of a suite, I guess you could say. Uh, and it's it's so strong. It is uh, just a, another standout piece of music on an album that is, you know, really has no clunkers. It's just uh, from front to back, it gets, it goes, it takes the listener on its journey and it's a very it, it, the my interest I have as the as the album plays and certainly through just shine on you crazy diamond itself parts one through nine even though they are broken up it 
is a journey. It's a very interesting journey. And, you know, no point am I going, okay, let's get to the next part. Or from earlier parts going, okay, let's get to wish you were here. You know, it's all very listenable uh, in a very interesting, uh, very interesting way. And, you know, just part of a, a great sequence on, or series of sequences on a great album. Final little bit of trivia, and I guess a uh, an illusion of what's uh, what's to come for the band. Wish you or shine on your crazy diamond is the uh, it's the last Rick Wright writing credit until the Division Bell. Um, I did not know that, but okay, wow, that's uh, that is an interesting bit of trivia that I did not realize at all. Yeah, so uh, you know, just just interesting that on on the album that has so much to say about. Uh, uh, sort of becoming, I guess, disconnected or to trying to find something that's gone. That's uh, that's the last uh, track that he was going to write on, and that's uh, a sign of the sort of the splintering of of the group in the in the coming albums. But we'll certainly get to those albums in uh, in future episodes. Uh, Jerry, this is usually the point where we uh, go through and pick our, our favorites and our least favorites, and it's going to get harder and harder um, as we go through these these landmark albums to, to say that anything is better than the rest or, or not as good as the rest. But um, if you like to give it a try, go right ahead. Yeah, that's a tough one, and I, I appreciate you uh, letting me try and find <laughs> a way forwards uh, on how to how to place this one or place the cuts on the album into that context and I really got to give credit uh, to uh, Roger Waters obviously and David Gilmour and Nick Mason and Rick Wright and all of Pink Floyd uh, when you get down to it I have to say that my Am I doing a clunker first, or do you want uh, a, well, a, a, an album without clunkers? But uh, uh, refresh my memory. We'll, we'll be di- let's 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 be diplomatic and let's say let's go with your least favorite. Right. Okay. I wasn't sure what to go with first. <laughs> yeah. Go with you know, that whether one. I was going to go with my uh, what do I like the most and what do I uh, maybe not like as much, which is as close as I can get to this album is concerned. But uh, as far as that's concerned, uh, God, it's uh, probably Welcome to the Machine is my least, uh, in a, you know, weak is such a strong word. Um, it is not as strong as the rest of the songs are on the album. And, but all that said, it is, you know, and perhaps part of this is because of how much radio play it got at the time. And, you know, various people, oh, yeah, Welcome to the Machine, it's badass. You know, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Thank you for your editorializing here, as I say in an editorial way. Uh, Welcome to the Machine, I think, is my least favorite on the album, although I love it because <laughs> it fits on the album perfectly and it comes out of Shine On You Crazy Diamond so well. And I'm going to be wishy-washy here and give a tie between Wish You Were Here and Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Shine On You Crazy Diamond is a brilliant uh, 
collection of, and that's really the wrong word for it, it is a brilliant piece of music. Uh, it is a long form, which I always like, and it speaks to so many things. Uh, the history of the band, it speaks to madness, it speaks to beauty, it speaks to love, it speaks to friendship more than anything. And that is, uh, those are good things when they're done well, and they're done well, and it's, so it's good. Um, and of course, Wish You Were Here, which is, speaks to all those things as well, but in a short, for, short form and in an entirely different way than Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And um, that's the best I can do. Uh, well said. And yeah, this is this is not um, not easy. Not easy. And we're we're in in the beginning of a run of four albums in a row, really, starting with Dark Side. That really you would you'd be hard pressed to say this album would be better without this this track. And this is not in any way meant to convey that feeling but uh I, i'm with you on on welcome to the machine being the one track that just doesn't quite reach for whatever reason doesn't quite reach the same highs that the other tracks on the album reach which is an unfair thing to to challenge any song to reach those types of uh peaks um I like Welcome to the Machine. I don't hold any grudges against it for embarrassing me at that Halloween party all those years ago <laughs> when I put it on a mixtape and no one no one jived with it. But uh, <laughs> the uh, Welcome to the Machine, I, I think it might be something to do with the, um, the association I make that it sounds a lot like a, a soundscape gave birth to a song and the soundscapes right. haven't been my favorites so far. Um, but I can't imagine this album without it. I think it speaks to the themes of the album in a way that, um, give that it deserves its spot on the album. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it off the album for anything. Um, so that's just, if I were to rank them one through five, that's where I would rank would be fifth, but not to say that I dislike it. Um, top of the heat for me, Shine On is, is a fantastic track, but uh, I'm going to go with Wish You Were Here um, just because of it's it's the, the closest I will ever get to appreciating poetry. Um, right. It's, it's a beautiful song musically. It's a beautiful song lyrically. Um, the singing performance uh, from David is just uh, outstanding. Um, it it's part of it's part of the rock and roll canon. Uh, it, you would you would put this on your time life best of rock music collection. Um, it's it's one of the greatest songs ever. Um, it's one of my top two or three Pink Floyd songs for sure. So Wish You Were Here is my top one. All right, then. Well, with that, the needle goes up and we place the record back in its sleeve. Please look out for our next episode where we put on Pink Floyd's next album. 
where things take a dark turn as opposed to a cynical turn. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, that Oh, by the way, that album will be Animals. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode. Until next time, this is Jerry. And Al. On the Vinyl Sideways podcast, we will see you soon and shine on. Shine on.